We uh, left off last time together last Wednesday, uh, looking, well, the last time you and I were in the book of Genesis together, looking at the faith of Joseph and Jacob and how uh, Jacob was nearing the end here. And so we are reading the last words tonight of Jacob as he gives the blessing upon his sons who will become the nation of Israel. You're in Genesis chapter 49. And uh, can you believe we've come this far? It seems like uh, not too long ago we were beginning with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we walked through uh, the beginning of time and the Bible's account of that and then the nations dispersing, uh, looking together at how God, uh, God uh, brought a judgment upon the earth and a flood and saved Noah because of his faith and his righteousness. And eight souls came off of that ark alive. And from there they began to repopulate the earth. And then we traced humankind down to a man named Abraham, who was the father of the Jewish people. And from Abraham came Isaac, the son of promise, that one that would fulfill the covenant blessings that God had promised to Abraham. And his son would be Jacob. And we're in the last uh, Toledot, the last genealogy, if you will, the last chronicle of the book of Genesis, looking at these patriarchs of the nation of Israel. And why is that so important? Why does the, Gen- why does the book of Genesis uh, narrow things down to this person and his family? Well, it's because that is through whom our Savior would one day come. And so these things are telling us uh, the plan of God that unfolds His redemption for the world. Jesus is coming again. He's already come once as uh fulfills prophecy that we'll read even tonight in Genesis chapter 49. I want you to look with me. I don't want to read the whole chapter. I would encourage you to do so in your, in your time, though, because there's just so many things to ponder here. And uh, I'll give you a, a, a little bit of an encouragement. If you want to do a, an interesting study, I would take each one of these Bible names that you'll read in Genesis 49 and do a little bit of digging on each one and see if you can trace how uh, they're seen throughout the rest of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. You're in Genesis 49. Look with me at verse number 8. Judah. Judah. This is the fourth son of Jacob. Not the first son, not the second or the third son. This is the fourth son of Jacob. By Leah, Judah. Thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. A little play on words because Judah's name means praise. Judah. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son. Thou art gone up, stooped down. He crouched as a lion, as an old lion. Who shall rouse him up? Read verse 10 out loud with me. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Binding his foal unto the vine, and his asses cold unto the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine, and his teeth white with milk. What a prophecy. Let's pray. Lord, I, I ask that you'll help us to see by faith what Jacob could see all those years ago as he was getting ready to 
depart this life, Lord, this world that is such an unfriendly world, this life that's but a vapor, this uh, time of, of trouble, Lord, as the sparks fly upward, few days and full of sorrow, as he nears the end of his pilgrimage here in this life, he has faith to see a city whose builder and maker is God. I ask, Lord, that you'll encourage us with the same faith that is the victory that overcomes the world tonight. What a passage. I stand in awe of how you have foretold so many things through Jacob, even things that are future yet for us sitting here even tonight. And yet he was able by faith to see them. May you reveal yourself personally to us tonight, Lord, and may we take these words and learn from them, and may we look at Genesis chapter 49 and behold and stand in awe of how you, our Maker, our Creator, didn't leave us alone, but knew exactly what we would need to send us a Savior, our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who could take away our sins once and for all. And He is coming again, Lord. May that hope stir us on to keep going for Him and to be able to see Your grace upon our lives through faith in our Savior. In His precious name we pray. Amen. Judah. What a passage. Uh, Genesis 49, as I mentioned, is full of names and full of Bible characters. Now, the primary ones that you're reading will become the nation of Israel. And each one of these that are mentioned by Jacob here have an unfolding that will occur. They have, a, they have a, a story behind them. We know more about some of their stories than others. For instance, we don't really know that much about what's going to happen to Naphtali or uh, to Dan per se. I mean, we have little snippets of accounts here and there. But uh, Gad, we can place him in the land and even his boundaries, even his borders sometimes are hard to distinguish and delineate. Uh, and the opposition that comes against them uh, throughout uh, their conquering of Canaan and as they go forward. But some things are unmistakable as we look at the scriptures tonight. Hey, what if I could tell you you could know the future? Yeah. I'm not talking about a hundred years from now. Even. I'm talking about half a minute. Fifteen seconds. If you could just know 15 seconds into the future, well, I've got a pretty surefire way that you could become a billionaire, a multi-billionaire, if you could see even 15 seconds into the future. You just head over to that New York Stock Exchange and buy when the stocks go down and sell when the stocks go up. and You'll be a billionaire. And it's as easy as... One plus one equals two. That's all it takes. If you could just see 15 seconds, half a minute into the future. But I stand amazed tonight because here we have Jacob, who not as, he's not getting a glimpse of a mere half minute into the future. He's seeing things that prophetically are going to unfold for the nation of Israel through their course of history all the way into the time where they'll be led into bondage and out of bondage through the time when the Messiah will come and have a reign of peace and the earth will be returned to a place of prosperity. All of that is seen right here in this chapter. I'm amazed. Now, the skeptic and the liberal scholar would come to this passage tonight and tell you, as the Zondervan Encyclopedia of the Bible does, 
that uh, this is not a prophecy in Genesis 49. And as soon as I read that article in that encyclopedia, I, said, I scratched my head and I said, not a prophecy, but you're telling, uh, you're telling me here it's a forecast? Well, what's a forecast? Well, if it's a forecast, if that's all you chalk this up to be, it's a divine forecast. And even by that measure, it's given by the inspiration of God. And as Jacob pens, as Moses pens these words, recalling Jacob's foretelling of what will happen to the, to the nation in the future, uh, friend, this is nothing short of divine prophecy. And you're on good ground when you look at this as, as something that's going to unfold as Israel comes in and takes the land. Oh, let's not, let's not uh, join with the critic in questioning the, the infallible inerrancy of Scripture. Let's just let the Bible read as the Bible. Now there's some details, of course, that Jacob is, uh, is only going to see in a, in a limited manner. For instance, you know, the, the critic would say, what about Zebulun? He never uh, really had a possession on the seacoast, and Jacob is saying he's going to be on the seacoast. Well, the wording leaves it open to be able to understand Zebulun's going to be close enough to be the merchant between the sea and Israel. And so he will have his borders there in a land that I believe is prophetic. Prophetic in that, from that area, Jesus will come. And Isaiah prophesies about that. Will I get ahead of myself? So as Genesis 47 and 48 closed, we remembered that uh, Jacob now has moved his family down to Egypt due to the famine. If you remember the story of Joseph, Joseph, as a 17-year-old young man, was taken by his brothers and thrown in a pit, and they were going to kill him. But Reuben and Judah stood up for him and said, well, let's not kill him, lest his blood be on our hands. And Judah would be the one that would uh, convince his brothers to sell Joseph to the Midianite, uh, Midianite traders that were coming through, the merchant, uh, merchant men that were headed down to Egypt. And so they'll make that deal, and Joseph will never see his father again until... He comes down to Egypt here in Genesis chapter 47. And so while Joseph is down in Egypt, he gets sold to Potiphar. And he's in Potiphar's house and the Lord was with Joseph and prospered everything he touched. And then that fateful day came when Joseph was falsely accused of impropriety with Potiphar's wife. And Potiphar then had to do something and Joseph found himself in prison innocently. He didn't do anything to deserve it, and he's in that dungeon. He's in that prison ward for years of his life there. Well, by the providence of God, the keeper of that prison ward had put everything in Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph, and everything he did prospered. And God's hand was on that young man. And uh, before long, you have the baker and the bottler, the butler of Pharaoh, who get thrown into prison on the same day, and they each have a dream. Now, dreams connect the life of Joseph. Before he was thrown into the pit, one of the things that caused his brothers to envy him so much was that he had a couple of dreams. And in those two dreams, uh, he informed his family that the day would come when they would all bow down before him. And they couldn't understand that. They couldn't receive that. And so now he's in prison, and the butler and the baker have their dreams, and Joseph interprets them properly with the help of God and with divine aid, and he reveals the outcome for each one. Pretty good for one, not so good for the other. The butler would be restored. The baker would have his head taken off by Pharaoh. And the only plea that Joseph made in his innocency there in that prison was to that butler, when you go back to Pharaoh, don't forget about me. 
but he did. For two more years, Joseph would waste away in prison until uh, until Pharaoh would have two dreams. You see, two dreams that Joseph had, two dreams, the butler and the baker, two dreams that Pharaoh would have. And God allowed Joseph to be able to bring Pharaoh along and help him understand those two dreams. There would be seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. And upon his advice, Pharaoh installed a man who was wise enough to govern the affairs of Egypt, and that wound up being Joseph. So here he is, prime minister of Egypt, second in command, answering only to Pharaoh. And the Lord was with Joseph and prospered him and blessed everything and gave him wisdom. And through that wisdom, he was able to order the affairs of Egypt and collect and store up in the seven years of plenty. And then the seven years of famine hit. Joseph positioned himself in Egypt, in, uh, in Memphis area, I believe, in the place that would be close to Goshen. And I think that was on purpose because as that prodigal was looking over the rise, waiting for his son to return, Joseph was looking over the rise, waiting for his brothers to come and find food and find bread in Egypt because he knew the famine would be bad around the entire world. And, uh, and there it is, that fateful day. He lifts up his eyes, perhaps, and sees them coming over the ridge. He recognizes them, but they can't recognize him because he's in all of his Egyptian apparel and he's speaking Egyptian. And, and so he keeps himself hidden from them. He doesn't reveal himself until he's able to prove them and test them to see, have they changed? Have they repented? Are they remorseful for what they did for him? Throwing him in the pit, selling him into slavery. Is there any change that's come over them? And so he runs them through a barrage of tests and examinations, if you will, and tests them. And uh, he finds out God had been bringing some conviction into their heart and life. That's all the way back with Reuben's words. God's found out our sin. God's doing this to us because of what we did all those years ago and hiding that from our dad and hiding that sin. Be sure your sin will find you out. So as the story unfolds, now Joseph has sent them back multiple times to Canaan, to, jo- to Jacob, in, an, in order to try to get Jacob and Benjamin and the rest of the family down to Egypt where he can care for them and take care of them because he believes the Word of God. To his great-granddaddy, a prophecy was given. 400 years, the people of Israel would stay in Egypt. And Joseph understood what God was doing in his day, that this was the time. And remember, Jacob had to even validate that with God because Judah comes back with the rest of the brothers and they say, it's time to move down to Egypt. Joseph's told us to come down there and move everybody down there. And Jacob says, Joseph's alive. I've got to go see Joseph. But he makes a stop in Beersheba. And he stops there and has an altar time with God. And God says, now's the time. There's a right time to go down to Egypt. And so with that confirmation, Jacob then makes the journey with the rest of his family. And the reunion occurs. And father and son meet who haven't seen each other in decades. And a happy reunion. And yet Jacob is at the end of his life. He's at the end of his days. So Joseph, with Pharaoh's help, gets his family all situated because they were shepherds, they were were sheep herders and cattle drivers, uh, and and that was an abomination to the Egyptians. And so Joseph uh, made a a deal with Pharaoh that they could be in Goshen, in a land that would uh, fare them well for their cattle 
And it's interesting to me that the whole time Egypt would be selling themselves out to Pharaoh because they had spent all their money on grain and now they've got nothing else to buy bread with. And Joseph, in chapter 46, begins the administration of of all Egypt selling everything they have to Pharaoh. Jacob and all of his children there in the land of Goshen are taken care of by Joseph. And God just watches out for them. Amazing to be in the world and not of the world. To be fed by the hand of our good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. Now Jacob knows that his time is nearing the end. And he calls his, his son Joseph. And Joseph gets word that dad is sick. And Joseph brings Ephraim and Manasseh. Or maybe I should say Manasseh and Ephraim. No, it's Ephraim and Manasseh. And he brings his boys to Jacob who will then proclaim a blessing upon Ephraim and Manasseh. Ephraim is the younger of the two, and there's a play on his name even in Genesis chapter 49. Fruitful. The Lord has made me to be fruitful in the land of oppression, in the land where Joseph was sold as a slave. Now God has turned the whole situation around with His blessing upon him. And so Jacob has blessed Joseph already, and he's blessed Ephraim and Manasseh in chapter 48. In chapter 49, the rest of the brothers come in. It's the last words of Jacob. His eyes are dim for age. 147 years old he'll be when he takes his final breath, when he raises his feet up into that bed and makes them promise, don't bury me here in Egypt. Take my bones back to Heth. Take my bones back to Mamre. That's where my granddaddy and his wife are buried. That's where my daddy and his wife are buried. That's where my wife is buried, Leah. And Jacob says, promise that you'll take me back there. Amazing. That not only Jacob, but Joseph will have the same promise foretold of him. That when you fast forward to the book of Exodus, and Joseph has died long ago, the children of Israel... They pack up Joseph's bones and they take him and they bury him in the land of promise. When he could have had a a pyramid. I mean, think about the pyramids in Egypt that are still standing today. And maybe we could have a a hieroglyph on there that says, Here lies Joseph. And the whole world could come, even today, all these thousands of years later, 4,000 plus years later, and see the tomb of Joseph in in the pyramids of Egypt. He could have had that, but he said, No, don't leave me here. Take my bones to the land of promise because that's the fulfillment of the Word of God. And as we read Genesis 49, we've got to understand God has a bigger plan. He's working a larger larger scale and, and His Word is true. The gathering of the blessings here in verses 1 and 2. Jacob calls his sons together and he prophesies upon their future. The first thing I would have you to notice tonight about this prophecy is that be sure your sin will find you out. We read in verse number 1, Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. That sounds pretty prophetic to me. It sounds like an oracle of God to me. Gather yourselves together and hear ye sons of Jacob and hearken unto Israel your father. Notice the interchange of Jacob and Israel again. Pay attention to the details. The names are important. Remember, it was Jacob who was too weak and who was sick 
But it was Israel who found strength in the Lord to sit up upon his bed in chapter 48. So here Jacob calls, and it's Israel the father. Now from verse 3 down to verse number 27. I will tell you this is Hebrew poetry. And it's beautiful. Uh, It's parallel. As you unfold it, you see parallel thoughts. And so one cola will be connected to another cola. And that's not coca, by the way. It's, uh, It's lines of poetry. And so there's a meter to this. There's a verse to this. As it unfolds, there's, there's a beauty in the Hebrew poetry. Notice, as he begins his prophecy, as he begins his blessing, he says, Reuben, thou art my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity, and the excellency of power. Then he says, unstable as water, thou shalt not excel, because thou wentest up to thy father's bed, then defiles thou it. He went up to my couch. In other words, he took my couch away. As you could translate it that way as well. Simeon and Levi are brethren. Instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. Swords of violence, you could render it. Weapons, swords, hearkening back to the incident with their sister Dinah and Shechem. O my soul, Jacob pleads, come not thou into their secret, unto their assembly. Mine honor, be not thou united. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they dig down a a wall. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Notice the prophecy for Reuben. Thou shalt not excel. Verse number 4. Notice the prophecy for Simeon and Levi. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Be sure your sin will find you out. Reuben is defiled. Reuben has great potential. He's the beginning of Jacob's strength. And yet, Jacob points out here that Reuben is unstable as water. The word in the Hebrew uh, is the only time you'll see it translated here. And it has the idea of, of a rolling boil of water. Unstable as water. You know, there's a, that's, a, that's almost scientific, isn't it? As you think about how water boils and the molecules begin to go everywhere until it rolls. This is like Reuben. See, what happened was he allowed his passion and his lust to go unbridled, unchecked. There were no boundaries on it. And it overflowed the pot. And he couldn't contain himself anymore. And in lust he burned. And that turned into a rolling boil. And he defiled his father's bed. Because he couldn't walk in self-control. Be sure your sin will find you out. It was Reuben who we see vacillating back and forth. No, don't kill him, just throw him in a pit. Well, I'll come back and rescue him later. Oh no, he's gone. Well, God's done this to us because He's found us out. Even you fast forward into the history of Israel and you see Reuben on the fence. Well, do we want to go over? No, we're going to stay on this side of Jordan because it's better for our cattle over here. And all through his days, he's unstable. He's back and forth on this side and that because he has this unbridledness about him. There's no stability in it. Jacob here notes that. And so, the firstborn. uh, According to the law of Moses and 
And the Bible, he should have had the double blessing. He should have had the double portion. He should have had what Joseph was given as the firstborn. And oh, can you imagine that day? The first two children that are born here. You have Reuben and you have Simeon. And it, and it has to do with the eyes and the ears. And so can you imagine as Leah conceived and found out she was expecting and gave that news and Leah is going to bring birth to a son and, and Reuben's born and behold, a son. Reuben. To see a son. Reuben. Look, behold, God's given us a boy. He's given us a son. He's the beginning of Jacob's strength. And yet, Jacob says you're unstable. And Reuben forfeited his blessings. What potential? But what was Reuben's pitfall? Lust. Lust. Isn't that the same thing that we have to battle against today? That lust that James tells us? Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. And so Reuben is tasting the bitter experience of the consequence of unbridled lust that now has matured and grown up and reared its ugly head. And Reuben now has forfeited the blessings Oh, friend, let's not forfeit those blessings. You might say, but it's too late for me. You know, I'm in Reuben's shoes. I don't know what I have to go to heaven for. Can I reassure you that God is a God of mercy and grace? And that even though, even though Reuben here is forfeited his blessings in one sense, he's still going into the land of promise. He's still going to have the blessings of an inheritance in Israel. And he's still going to be named in the book of Revelation as part of that, uh, that naming of the tribes of Israel. He's part of that foundation. And so don't let that discourage you. Yes, we battle lust and we battle sin, and we can overcome that by faith and with the help of the Holy Spirit. It's never too late. It's never too late. But Reuben is an example, is he not? That the consequences of sin will find you out. One thing that will destroy you is lust. Now let's consider the second thing. We look at Simeon and, and Levi. Having considered how Reuben is defiled, seeing his potential, noting his pitfall, Simeon and Levi are dispersed in Israel. What happened there? Their self-will rises, and they give way to anger, to violence, and really, to anarchy. We go back to that incident, I believe Jacob is referring back to the time when they slew the town of Shechem for what they had done to Dinah. Now it was wrong what happened to Dinah, don't misunderstand me, but Simeon and Levi became their own mercenaries. And notice Jacob here is letting us in on, uh, well, you know, as old Harvey would say, uh, now you know the rest of the story. See, we weren't given a lot of details back then about what all transpired. It almost went unnoted that these things happened and we saw Jacob's remorse because now he's going to stink to the land, the inhabitants of the land. He's fearful for his life because of what they had done with their sword and slaying the town of Shechem and their weakness, taking advantage of them. They took the law in their own hands. Notice he uses the word secret. This is a conspiracy. Simeon and Levi hatched this plan, hatched this concoction together. Levi has the idea of being joined to, by the way. 
And so you always see Levi joined to somebody else in the Bible. Isn't that interesting? He's never on his own. He's always with somebody else. And uh, so they took their sword and they committed such an atrocity. And Jacob says here, I'm not coming into that secret. I'm not coming into that, that uh, secret knowledge, that counsel that you had behind closed doors. You watch the news lately? Okay, well, I won't, uh, I won't dwell on that. <laughs> Simeon and Levi are dispersed. Reuben is defiled. Simeon and Levi are dispersed. Now, this is interesting to trace what happens to them in their history. Simeon, what an amazing thing to consider. As they come into the promised land, Simeon just loses number and loses number and loses number, and he dwindles down to, to near nothing. Near nothing. And the only reason he's in the promised land is because Judah, the tribe of Judah, one day is going to come up to Simeon and say, hey, you know, let's go do this together. Uh, I'll help you. You help me. I'll watch your back. I'll watch, you know, you watch mine. And, and uh, so Simeon winds up being engulfed, if you will, into the tribe of Judah. Simeon is dispersed. Did Jacob's words come true? Absolutely. What about Levi? Levi didn't receive an allotment of land. The Lord would be Levi's inheritance. Because Levi would be the priestly tribe and he would be dispersed and scattered all through Israel and there would be sanctuary cities, if you will. Well, let's call them a biblical term. These are cities of refuge, right? A sanctuary city is is not a good way to think about that because uh, a city of refuge would be a place where someone who has an avenger of blood after them could go until there would be due process and a trial that could occur to determine their innocence or guilt. And so the cities of refuge, these would be Levite cities, and they would be scattered and dispersed all throughout the twelve tribes of Israel. So did Jacob's words come true? Let me tell you the other thing that will destroy you faster than anything else that will disperse you, if you will, and leave you with nothing in the end, and that is unbridled anger. Unbridled lust and untamed anger will ruin you. Be sure your sin will find you out. Hey, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all missed that mark. None of us deserve to stand before God. There's, there's no reason why He should ever accept any of us before His sight. And yet, in His grace and mercy, it doesn't stop there. Notice with me, not only does our sin find us out, but we can see the prophecy of the Messiah until Shiloh come. I'm thankful that God gave a Redeemer to take our sins. There's no way we could ever pay for them ourselves without having to pay for them for all eternity in a place called hell. And yet, we can come by faith through the Messiah. We can put our sin debt upon Jesus Christ and He takes it all. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath He removed our transgressions for us. And so the prophecy begins to turn from the focus on the failure and the sin and the lust and the anger and it begins to focus on the praise and the power of God and the promises of Messiah to come because He's the deliverer of the world. Until Shiloh come, verse number 8, we notice some things about Judah. And I'm going to uh, look together with you here at not only Judah, but I think there's good argument to put Zebulun and Issachar right here with him. Judah is empowered. Notice his praise, his power, his prophecy, and his prosperity. Judah's empowerment in verse number 8. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. This is prophetic of the strength that Judah will wield when they come into the land. 
Now remember, the first king that Israel would choose is not from the tribe of Judah. It's going to be from the tribe of Benjamin. And Benjamin is, is like the ravening wolf in this prophecy. And uh, I think that's a positive aspect on the wolf, by the way, in that there's a strength in a wolf. And so Benjamin here is, is, uh, is the first tribe that they say, we want a king. And so they picked a man, and it wound up being Saul, head and shoulders above everyone else. And when Saul died, that tragedy that surrounded his death, Hebron in the south, Judah, and the southern tribes of Israel took David and said, he's our king, he's the man after God's own heart, and he was in Saul's courts, remember. And he ran from Saul for years. And so while Judah recognized what God was doing, it took some time in the north, didn't it? Because when Saul died, his son Ishbosheth decided he would try to ascend to the throne. It didn't work out that way. And once Saul's household was gone, then the rest of Israel acknowledged the hand of God on David and Judah's prophecy that's foretold here came to pass. And the man after God's own heart from the tribe of Judah would go forth and he would conquer and he would do more for the land of Israel than any king before him. And under his reign, after, after his son Solomon would ascend to the throne, Israel had rest all around them because of the exploits of David. Saul has slain his thousands. David his ten thousands. David and Goliath. David, the king of Israel. Thou son of David, have mercy on me. The son of David. All of that looking to the prophecy of Messiah. Judah's praise. All Israel shall praise him. Interesting, interesting. Even with the dispersion. We look at the, the, the records of this time and we talk about the Egyptians. Well, where are the pharaohs today? You ever, you ever seen an Amorite? Have you ever seen a Hivite? You ever seen a parasite? Well, maybe not that parasite, but a parasite. <laughs> you ever seen any of these other ites or nations or any of that? No, but you know what? Some of the dearest friends I have are people who are Jew, Jewish people, Jews. And that's just a shortened phrase of Judah. Judah. And so while everyone else has been dispersed and gone and, and the Assyrian Empire is no more and, and uh, the Babylonian Empire is no more and the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great is no more and even Rome imploded on itself and today there's nations that rise and nations that fall yet through it all, all the way back to the very beginning. We have the Jew. We have the lion of the tribe of Judah that's prophesied one day to come. That's amazing to me. Because this prophecy says, until the gathering. And so in that day, all the gathering will happen. He says in verse number, number 10, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. All the way up until Jesus Christ comes again, you're going to find the Jewish people on the earth. And that's amazing. That speaks to prophecy, and that speaks to the to the reliability of the Word of God. Judah's praise. Judah's power in verse number 9. He's a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. Stoop down, couched as a lion, as an old lion. Who shall rouse him up? We see his power will be unstoppable. We see the prophecy of Shiloh and the lawgiver from between his feet. The scepter. A star shall arise out of Jacob, old Balaam prophesied, didn't he? And that star is Jesus Christ. 
He's the day star. And He arises with healing in His wings. And He brings that. He's coming again. Jesus is coming again. We sang that. Notice the prosperity in verses 9 through 11. Uh, 10 through 11, 11, 12. Binding is full into the vine. So what that means is that in, in the day that Jacob is seeing here, the vines are going to be so big in Israel that old Judah is going to be able to hitch up his, his horse to him and tie him off like you know you used to do back here in the West in Denver. You, there's still laws on the books about spitting on the streets out here because it's the West, right? And so you'd pull up uh, out maybe in front of the bank or something, you'd have to hitch up your horse out there. Well, the vines are going to be so big that they're going to use those for hitching posts. And that speaks of prosperity. The, the milk that's referred to here speaks of wealth, not necessarily health. It's talking about wealth in that day. His teeth white with milk. This was a land that flowed with milk and honey. And isn't it interesting that when they went into the land and they waxed fat on all the blessings of God, they began to leave Him out. I think it was old Herbert Lockyer in his All series, All the Men and All the Women in the Bible, uh, he pointed out that fact that you know it's a sad thing when the things that God give us begin to take place of God in our life. That's convicting. And that's what happened to Israel as they got into the land and God had to send them into judgment, but He's bringing back His nation. And it's amazing to see, since 1948, how they've populated that land again and, and, uh, and had you know, the hand of God on them to do that. All the irrigation, the science. you got a smartphone with you today? You can thank the Israelites for that. Uh, some of the most brilliant people we've had in our time have come out of the, the, out of the nation of Israel, so to speak. They're Jewish people. Albert Einstein, I mean, we could just go down the list. E equals MC squared. Where did we find all that out? Amazing. Because Daniel also prophesied that uh, in the latter days knowledge shall increase. And so God's moving according to His purpose and His plan. And so we, we're sure our sin will find us out. But I'm thankful that there's a Savior that we can put our sins upon. And we can have faith in His blood. Now why do I put Zebulun with the rest of this? As we continue on reading, we read in verse 13, Zebulun shall dwell at the haven of the sea. You know, the haven of rest to my soul. Uh, that song make, you know, makes me think of that song when I read these words. He shall be for an haven of ships. His border shall be unto Zidon. This is up in the north uh, country, the northwest region of Israel. And I got to spend some time over in Zebulun when I stopped at, uh, at the Jezreel Valley and looked over into that valley and got to consider the, the battle of Barak and Deborah that happened there and and all of the hosts of Sisera and their chariots stuck in the mud pits. That was in the land of Zebulun. Shall any good thing come out of Nazareth? That was Philip's question. What's going to come out of Nazareth? Messiah is not prophesied to come through. Messiah is going to come from Bethlehem. Well, I'll tell you. Isaiah prophesies about the land of Zebulun. Let's look at Matthew chapter number 4, if you would, and consider this. And this is why I believe Joseph, under divine inspiration, prophesies about Zebulun right alongside Judah. Matthew chapter number 4. First gospel of the New Testament. In verse number 12, after Jesus' temptation, 
The devil leaves him in verse 11. Verse 12, we read, Now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the seacoast in the borders of Zebulun and Nephthalim. Why did Jesus spend his time up there in the land of Zebulun? Because of the prophecy of Jacob, Zebulun shall dwell, the haven of the sea shall be that haven. Look at what Matthew says is fulfillment of Zebulun. He says that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah, that's Isaiah, the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw a great light, and to them which sat in the region of the shadow of death, light is sprung up. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the land of Zebulun. So why are Judah and Zebulun considered together? Because Zebulun will be where our Savior will spend His earthly days. In the land of Capernaum and the Sea of Galilee and along that region. And the land that sat in darkness, the land of the Gentiles, saw a great light. Oh, what a prophecy. I'm so thankful that we have hope that Shiloh's coming again. And that Jesus will return. And He will come as is prophesied traveling. And the blood will be up to the horse's bridles. And in that day of the gathering, the whole world will be gathered at the feet of Jesus. And as Paul said, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Either you'll do it then and there, with a shamefulness, acknowledging His glory and His power, or you can do it here in humility, saying you are the promised one. You are the one that Jacob saw in his dying days and prophesied that until Shiloh come. There's an inheritance by adoption. You see, once we understand that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and we understand God has made a remedy and He's provided a Savior, we take Him by faith. And this is beautiful. In Genesis 49, I want to tell you, there's an adoption that occurred. There's a thing that happened with these other sons that were born to the handmaids. And I'm thankful that even though I'm not Jewish by birth, I can be adopted through Jesus Christ and by faith, I'm a child of Abraham, and all the spiritual blessings in him are mine. Oh, the book of Ephesians tells us about that wonderful inheritance we have. Think about it. Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. Now, why did I name them in that order? Because it's easier for me to remember who their mom is. In Genesis 49, it's Dan, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, because that's the order in which they were born. And this is back to that soap opera. These are the days of Jacob's lives. (laughs) And this was when there was that tit for tat, the back and forth between Rachel and Leah, and they're competing on who can give Jacob more children. And and so they're doing surrogacy and every other means possible to try to bring children to Jacob. And, And so the first one that's born is to Rachel, and it's through her handmaid Bilhah, and that is Dan. And she named him that because she says, God has seen and He's judged my cause. And so Dan was an answer to her prayers. And Dan was adopted. 
into Jacob's family by surrogacy. Do you see the adoption aspect of it? I don't think I'm off base too far there. Dan, this is uh, Rachel's son through Bilhah, Dan the judge. And uh, maybe you would think of the account of Samson or the exploits of his, his days when he took on the Philistines. Dan is prophesied to be an adder among the way. I skipped over Issachar, by the way. Issachar is, is the one that's crouching between two burdens, and that's up there close to Zebulun, and he sees a land of rest. There's, a, there's a, an aspect there. I didn't want to miss that. But Dan is the one who is the adder by the way. And it's interesting that idolatry will first come into Israel through Dan. He's that one that bites in the end. He's that serpent. He's that snake. Now Dan is at the forefront of holding enemies at bay up in the north land of Israel. And it's in the land of Dan that we find Jesus making that great proclamation to Peter when he says, Who do men say that I am? Well, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist back from the dead. Some say this and some say that. And Jesus asked plainly, Whom say ye that I am? And Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was proclaimed in the land of Dan, at the gates of hell, up at the foot of Mount Hermon in Caesarea Philippi. And from that moment forward, Jesus steadfastly set His face to go to Jerusalem. And from there He would go to die for the sins of the world having put, put down all principality and power, having exalted His name and His authority above all the pagan gods of time, right there at the altar of Zeus, right there in the, in the threshold of Pan, the God Pan, Jesus Christ is exalted as the Most High. And He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Gad, He's the overcomer. Uh, he's the one that is going to, to overcome in the end. And Gad, is in, he's, he's an interesting tribe to study through the land of Israel as it unfolds and then they're in the land. Hey, if you want somebody in the trenches next to you fighting in warfare, I'm going to call on Gad because he's, he's a true man. He's, he's strong. And he's up in the region of Gadara, by the way. He would be on that northeast shore of Galilee up in that region. Bethsaida would be up in this area. The maniac of Gadara would be in the land of Gad. So he's going to be constantly uh, battling against the, the, the Syrians and those that are up in that area. His boundaries are hard to place. But Gad, uh, what, a, what a character. And so he gets part of the inheritance. He's Leah's son through Zilpah. He's the overcomer. Asher, uh, he's the delicate one. He's the one that's going to provide dainties for the kings. Now Asher, he's going to be over close to Zebulun. He's going to be on the Mediterranean coast up, uh, up on the west side of Lebanon, up in that north region. And so you don't see a lot about Asher because uh, Asher uh, just kind of takes it as it comes. And whoever is their king, that's who they're going to serve. They wind up kind of dissipating and disappearing. And uh, they really are kind of amalgamated into all the, the land. But there is an interesting person that came from Asher. You'll find her when Jesus Christ was born. She's, uh, she's an elderly widow. And as Simeon lifted that baby boy up in his arms and said, I've seen the salvation of Israel, there was a prophetess there named Anna. And she was of the tribe of Asher, looking for the hope of Israel. Notice uh, Joseph, or Jacob, excuse me, says that in his prophecy here. He says, verse number 18, I've waited for this, thy salvation, O Lord. Excuse me, I think uh, Anna would be from the tribe of Dan. I may have that mistaken. So 
Um, it's either Dan or, or Asher. But I have waited for thy salvation. That sounds like the words of Anna, doesn't it? Waiting. And Simeon, waiting for the, for the salvation of the Lord. Out of Asher, his bread shall be fat, he shall yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a hind let loose. He giveth goodly words. Naphtali is the messenger. He's the one that brings the message of victory in warfare. Well, we hasten on. Do you see that there's an inheritance by adoption? And we're accepted in the beloved by Jesus Christ. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. We continue and we look at all the promises, all the blessings of God that will one day come. And as the prophecies unfold for Joseph, he's a fruitful bough. Verse 22, he's by a well. That tree by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The Lord was with Joseph. Notice for Joseph, we see a more lengthy, uh, a lengthy prophecy given, just like Judah. So let that sink in. Judah and Joseph are going to have the most said about them by Jacob. You'll see that throughout the history of Israel, the ones that have the most said about them in this passage are the ones that the nation typically, you'll see the histories revolving around. We read the most stories about them. Who's going to come from the tribe of Joseph? Well, Ephraim, the half-tribe of Manasseh. You're going to have Joshua. You're going to have uh, uh, Gideon from Manasseh. And so you're going to have some of these key characters in the history of Israel. Joseph is the fruitful bough. Notice his prosperity in verse 22. His persecution in verse 23. God's providential protection over him in verses 24 and 25. Look at how many times a name for God is used in verse 24. He says, His bow abode in strength. The arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. All these names for God. Even by the God of thy father who shall help thee by the almighty. That's El Shaddai. Who shall bless thee with blessings of heaven above. Blessings of the deep that lieth under. Blessings of the breast and of the womb. Blessings of thy father have prevailed. Notice Joseph prevails. We see his prosperity in the beginning. We see the persecution against him. We see the providential protection of Joseph. And then we see how the blessing of God prevails over him in verse 26. In spite of all that the world would throw at him, he winds up being carried through by God. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. Benjamin here being prophesied as that fearsome wolf. And you see that unfold through the history of, of Benjamin. There's some accounts to read about Benjamin. I just scratch my head and go, what? <laughs> what? And they still wanted a king from here? I just don't understand that. You know, Judges chapter 19 and chapter 20 are pretty gruesome. And they're going to want a king from Benjamin. I just, I, I don't understand it. But he is, uh, he is a, a fearsome, fearsome wolf. Now notice as I finish here with you tonight, let's put it all together. Faith is the victory. As Joseph has given the prophecies now. He puts his feet up in his bed after he makes him promise to take his bones back to that cave in Mamre, all by faith. And he goes out of this life in faith, looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. And God honored his faith, and what a way to go. A life of few days and full of trouble. Sorrow that he would share with Pharaoh. It's just full of trouble, and yet... He says, God led me all the way. He was my shepherd through it all. God oversaw everything that happened in my life. And all the good things I have in my life are because God did that for me. 
And here's old Jacob looking at his sons saying, God's going to take you back to that land one day and He's going to give that to you just like He promised my granddaddy. Don't let me die here. Don't let me, don't let me stay here in Egypt. Take me back to the promised land. Bury my bones in that cave right next to my granddaddy and my grandmother. Bury me right there where, where my dad and my mom are. Bury me where my wife is buried, Leah. Bury me there in the land of promise. And they're going to pack his bones up. They're going to take him back and they're going to bury him after, uh, after he's dead. Faith is the victory. And we do well to follow the faith of our fathers. You know, we're not making all this up. This was given to us by God. And we have a firm foundation. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord. And let's take God's Word as promises from Him that we can rely and rest on this. Faith of our fathers. Faith of our fathers. They're passed the torch to us. And God's given us all the promises of His Word. And if we're going to have the victory, it's going to be through faith in Jesus Christ. Oh, what a passage. But we need to put feet to our faith. And I say that as kind of a way to leave you with a lingering thought here in Genesis 49, verse 33. When Jacob had made an end of commanding his sons, he gathered up his feet into the bed. He put feet to his faith, closed his eyes in this life, and opened them up in paradise because of faith. And he took his last breath. And as his sons said goodbye, they remembered his words, how... Through the history of Israel, each one of these prophecies would come to fruition. We put feet to our faith. Feet to our faith. Let me give you just a, a summary of our observations here tonight that will hopefully be a blessing to you. Friend, God's Word holds the key to your future. This Word will tell you what will happen, not moments, seconds, just an instant after you take your last breath here. Death is but a semicolon. It's not a period. There's more to come. And the promises of God for the New Testament believer today is that when we die, we're absent from the body, present with the Lord, and one day Jesus is coming again to establish His kingdom on this earth, and this earth will return to its state like the Garden of Eden, and there will be prosperity, and we will get to enjoy that with Him by faith. God's Word holds the key to future. As Jacob gave these prophecies, we have prophecies, promises of the Word of God that we cling to today. Be sure, though, your sin will find you out. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Unbridled lust, uncontrolled anger, that will lead to forfeited blessings. Whether that is forfeited blessings, uh, that you forfeit eternal life because you never believed on Jesus Christ, or if you're saved and a child of God, one day you'll stand before the Lord Jesus Christ at a Bema Seat judgment, a judgment of reward. And you'll have to look back on that lust that you couldn't control. You'll have to look back on that anger that you, you made decisions you shouldn't have made. You said things you shouldn't have said. You did things you shouldn't have done. And you're going to give an account for that before the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the quick and the dead. And be sure your sin will find you out. You may have to suffer temporal judgment. He may bring chastening into your life to get you right with Him. You may suffer loss of future reward like Reuben and forfeit some blessings that Christ would otherwise give you if you would just bring your lust into check. Don't live in a lascivious manner. Bring that into check. Walk in the Spirit and you'll not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Be Spirit-led and Spirit-guided and there's blessings in store if you'll just hold on. But bring that anger into check. 
It's going to disperse you. It's going to destroy you in the end. God has a remedy for your sin. And it's through Jesus Christ. It's through our Savior. And the Lion of the tribe of Judah is the Lamb of God that taketh away sin. He's slain from before the foundation of the world. And friend, He is God big enough to carry your sin load. Why don't you take that to Him and say, Lord, I need you in this. I need your help. By faith, we have adoption. We've received the blessings. We partake of the inheritance in Jesus Christ. Just like Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. We get to be grafted in as Gentiles. When we don't belong, and yet God makes a place for us by faith, we have adoption through Jesus Christ. All the blessings are ours. By faith, we have victory over this world. We have victory even over death. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? We close our eyes here. We open our eyes in the presence of Jesus Christ. Oh, friend, this is a beautiful chapter. And I hope I've just whet your appetite for you to go and dig it deeper. But have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you trusted His name for salvation? There is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Oh, you have a sin debt. You sure do. But Jesus Christ knows that. And He's willing and will accept all who will come to Him by faith and He'll take your sin debt and burdens are lifted at Calvary. If you're saved, are you walking in the blessings that God has given you? Or are you walking in the Spirit and not in the flesh? I pray and trust that you are leaning upon Him. And one day, there's coming a day where Jesus Christ is going to come again and receive us unto Himself Where He is, there we may be also. Whither He goes, we know, and the way, we know. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by Him.